Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. I've said it before, Stephen Levy is the Dean of Tech Writers. All the way back in 1984, his classic book, Hackers, defined a tech space that wasn't even fully aware of itself yet. Stephen has written book-length histories and examinations of Apple and Google, and now, with his new book, Facebook, The Inside Story, he finally tells the full Facebook story for the first time. Not the movie version, the real story of how Facebook became Facebook from the earliest days at Harvard through the rise to two and a half billion users. It is, as I tell him, the best tech book I've read in recent years. If you want to fully understand Facebook or just how a modern startup works or how a modern tech behemoth functions and thinks of itself in the world, I cannot recommend this book more highly. Link to buy the book in the show notes. So I know that this is sort of writer inside baseball a bit to start out this way, but you got a lot of cooperation from Facebook people, like from Zuckerberg and Sandberg personally, and lots of ex-Facebook um, uh, employees. I'm just curious, uh, overall, the company, you had a good relationship with the company, they knew what you were doing, and there was no sort of like, well, you can't talk about this, you can't talk to that person or anything like that? No, um, I was allowed to ask anything. Um People could refuse to answer a question. A couple times um, they said, well, I don't want to get into that. But generally, um, they gave me their side of the story. There was no uh, quid pro quo. I mean, I didn't show them the book in advance. Uh, and there were no restrictions about what I could write about. And if there was something I didn't find out or, you know, just as a matter of course, everything that was told to me, uh, I made sure was true, and I talked to people outside of Facebook, and as you mentioned, ex-employees, and sometimes um, I would talk to people and have one kind of conversation inside the company, another outside the company. So it was all good. You know, the, the access uh, was just nothing but a plus. Um, if you're writing a book about a company, uh, you really want to know what the people at the company were thinking when they did this or when they did that or, you know, to learn about something they did that uh, wasn't public. And generally, the company itself feels like it is, they know that it's important to, to get the, the, the historical record out there in terms of their story as a company. Yeah, that was one pitch that I gave them. I said, look, you folks are doing something really, really important. Uh, there's a real big impact on society. Um, uh, that's why... I want to write the book in part, and that even if it isn't me, you owe it to the world to let someone tell the story. You know, as someone who has written a book about tech history from this time period, I was really fascinated and like grateful for you finally laying out the the real story of the early days of the company. Like, I feel like most people feel like they know the Facebook story because of the movie, but the reality of Facebook's early days is both more mundane and more amazing <laughs> than what people saw in the movie. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I, I, I would go for more amazing, um, uh, sort of my base premise 
of journalism is that uh, the reality of what you find if your mind is open when you report is always, and like sometimes always, more interesting than any preconception you might have. Um, and in this case, you know, to be honest, I thought because there have been stuff written about Facebook's early days, I wouldn't spend that much time on it. But because of the trouble that Facebook ran into during the time I was researching the book over the last three years, um, I realized that this whole early Facebook and even the early life of Mark Zuckerberg had to be reexamined and that uh, we could see signs of what led Facebook to its problems early on. Uh, and so I spent, you know, uh, you know, a considerable amount of time uh, going over some of those things, coming up with some some stuff that hadn't been reported before, um, or just looking at things with the benefit of hindsight that enabled me to set the foundation for the story of the company's growth and rise and the consequences that came of that. Yeah, and you you lay it out chronologically in a really compelling way. Like it's 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 a really fast paced read and like really dramatic, but. Um, well, like, for example, like, you lay this out, but, you know, to, in your mind, when do you think, you know, just to get into some of the details of the history that you talk about, what do you feel was the thing that that made Zuckerberg realize he was onto something that was really big as opposed to either just a lark or maybe a cool company that quit college for or whatever? What was the thing that you think the event or the, the, the time period when Zuckerberg was like, oh, this is this is huge? I think, you know, it, it wasn't one event. It was, you know, a cascade of events. So even though uh, from the start, the Facebook, which is what it was called when, um, you know, uh, Zuckerberg released it to uh, Harvard in February of 2004, you know, it captivated the campus, took it over. And then he found that it worked on other campuses, even when there was a competitor living on the other campus. So that was an interesting sign that he actually, you know, uh, tested this by the first places he expanded to were places where there was a competitor. He felt that, you know, let me go and topple um, someone over and see if this really works. Um, even so, when he got to Silicon Valley that summer of 2004, a few months after uh, he started, and they were, you know, on, you know, maybe, uh, you know, double double figures of campuses by then. Um, uh, he still had uh, another project he was working on that he thought, well, maybe I'll work on this. And he would say to Sean Parker, "You really think this is going to be big?" But meanwhile, things kept falling in his lap. He, you know, with with his connection to Parker, who you know he almost fortuitously ran into on in the streets of Palo Alto. Um, to renew uh, an acquaintanceship from a meeting they had a little earlier, uh, he was ushered into you know the you know uh, office of Peter Thiel. Um, you know, Reed Hoffman had already taken an interest in him, but Hoffman didn't want to be a lead investor because he had LinkedIn going, and he didn't want to uh, have that conflict of first and foremost. Um, so then they get money, and then he, they're all of a sudden there's this armed company uh, in Silicon Valley, too, uh, moving too fast for him to go back to Harvard. So it probably wasn't really, I'd say, until the end of 2004, when they had a million users, um, that he really settled on, yeah, this is like a big thing. 
And then over the next couple of years, he started thinking much bigger and how he would take it from a, a college uh, website to something that was um, going to be uh, uh, a worldwide force. What in your mind do you think, in Zuckerberg's mind, is the fundamental thing that he's doing with Facebook, that Facebook itself is doing? It's basically just connecting the world, getting everyone right. on the same network and lighting up the social graph. And, you know, the social graph, in his the way he talks about it, is this existing nexus of connections that people have. And you, and, so it, it, you it's map, funny. And, and, and as you map these connections, you know, they're not like, like lit until you're really connected online, or you might know someone. But he wants to light this whole, you know, complicated series, you know, uh, of connections between this person, between that person, and then the people you know, and your relationship with the people your friends know. Um, just light that up and, and be able to map it through one place, which is Facebook. Right, and what I was going to say, you, you sort of still get that sense from the quotes from him in the book that he, that still excites him. Like, you know, you hear people say, like, why is he still doing this? Facebook is one. Why does he still care? But I guess in his mind, you know, there's like, what is it that they're still there for Facebook to do? It's that maybe in his mind, that overarching idea still isn't complete yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, he still um, wants to ful fulfill that. And I think it's important for him to be the person that's doing it. I, I mean, like I talk about um, his childhood and, you know, when he was at school, at school and high school, um, you know, he loved games like civilization. He was a fanboy of Augustus Caesar. So he's very much, you know, likes the idea uh, besides the fact that I think he does believe it's a good thing for the world, but that he would be the person that conquers this, um, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the world by connecting us. Uh, so let's do get into some of the uh, actual fun details that like I, I hadn't heard before. Um, I, I don't think I had a, cons a concept of this, but the like button was actually a very late addition for Facebook, like later, much later than the news feed. Like, and that's kind of curious to me because I mean, reaction counts and things like that are, are so fundamental to how we understand the web and social media these days. And I mean, like the dig button had already been around forever. Like, I was just so surprised that that was like, that was late. And in fact, it took them for a while to adopt it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't that late. I mean, but it did come after the newsfeed. And it was a way, uh, originally proposed as a way to very quickly uh, express your interest in, you know, or your approval of something you saw without writing a comment. And uh, it took over a year for it to be implemented uh, because uh, there was some skepticism on Zuckerberg's part that maybe this will um, make people uh, less likely to post a comment. So uh, if, you know, they could just say like and leave it at that, they, they wouldn't say anything. But actually it was the opposite because they use like as a measure of engagement and would show you posts that are liked more than posts that don't have like attached to them, um, more people saw it, more people commented on it. Um, but by then, they were thinking of the like button in a, a bigger way, that it would be something not only that would be useful the way to express something, but a way to provide a piece of data about you. And it turned out to be much more powerful than they even 
suspected uh, when they started doing this. First of all, they spread it out throughout the web. It was the first thing really that took Facebook outside the borders of Facebook and you know extended its data gathering to millions and millions of websites, which put the like button on there. Um, and uh, but the second thing is that you know it, it told them so much about who you were, and a researcher not at Facebook. Um, uh, who was, I think, at Cambridge University at the time, later went to Stanford, um, who figures into the story in a couple ways. Um, he figured out that, I think, with uh, 15 likes, Facebook knew as much about you as a, a casual acquaintance. And with 30 likes, they knew about, much about you a friend. And with 300 likes, they knew as much about you as your spouse. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people outside of tech are unaware of is like the the key role of Chamath Palihapitiya and his uh, his growth team. Like there was like a time in early 2008 when growth had basically plateaued and then his growth, it's his growth team that made Facebook into the 2 billion plus phenomenon that we now know today. That's right. Yeah. And he, he sort of accumulated a team like, like, you know, kind of like the beginning of Mission Impossible where you throw those pictures out there or almost like the Dirty Dozen, where they you know, take these misfits and make them into a, into a team. He wanted his team to be thought of as, as misfits. Like they were the people who do things that really push the edges of propriety um, in you know, generating growth and you know, kind of doing things that you don't talk about outside of the growth group. And you know, they lived in their own little grotto in the, in the headquarters and, um, and got their way because Zuckerberg supported them all the way. So when the growth team was interested in something, um, you know, it got what it wanted. So they did all sorts of um, dicey tricks to goose growth. You know, they did a lot of, you know, in terms of you know, uh, soliciting uh, memberships, they would scrape all your, you know, contacts and, and other things and, you know, can send out um, Facebook invitations to people. And um, uh, the other part of what they did, they recognized early on that a big part of growing Facebook was retaining new users. Uh, because when you sign up for Facebook, uh, before you build your network on it and get your friends, you know, who uh, uh, people you know to friend you, uh, you're vulnerable because your newsfeed isn't that interesting. Uh, no one's posting things um, in your friend network. So they did things like they made up stories, uh, maybe the first fake news, uh, just so you have something on your newsfeed. And they'd also, um, uh, you know, uh, use something that Chamath referred to as uh, dark profiles, uh, which had come up earlier in, in, in the book. And Facebook has always said these don't exist, but Chamath told me that. Uh, they did exist, and he would uh, take out ads on Google um, and people's names uh, who he thought might join Facebook they hadn't joined. And when, if they searched for their own name on Google, which everyone does, uh, they would see an ad for themselves and saying, hey, you know, Joe Smith, you know, you don't check, you check out what we have on you at Facebook. And you click on it, and you'd say, you know, you're just not on Facebook anyway. Why don't you just finish it up and sign up? And then they would uh, bombard you with a, a feature called People You May Know, which we could talk about, to you know, immediately get you to uh, some friends of, you know, and connect with the people you knew already on Facebook, and then you were in. 
Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features features help you say the right thing at the right time every time plus you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to constant contacts best in class 97 percent deliverability rate i use this and you should too tackle any challenge with constant contacts expert live customer support plus everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at constantcontact.com Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Another thing that I forgot that your book reminded me of is that essentially, from Facebook's perspective, it was always like a a series of of threats coming from these out like it starts with Twitter where Twitter gets very popular very fast and it's fundamentally doing social media in a, in a way that's fundamentally different than how Facebook was doing it and then you know Instagram and Snapchat on and on and on and it's like one of the things that they always seemingly understood was you know people had said as a knock on social media all the time that it was faddish that something that worked would only work for a few years and then the the next new hot thing and so they were always really nimble about being aware of what the next new hot thing is and, and adapting with it. Yeah, they were. And, and then, you know, um, <clears throat> sometime, you know, in the 20, early in the 2010s, uh, they became very methodical about that, uh, about noticing what rose to the top. And they bought a company, uh, an Israeli company called Anavo, which essentially was a company's business model was somewhat of a deception that they would you know, offer like tools for mobile um, uh, that people would sign up for, but uh, buried in the terms of service was the idea that, that you know, it would be sucking up their data. So by using that tool, uh, Facebook was able to recognize early on what uh, apps were getting a lot of traction. 
So they noticed that uh, most famously about WhatsApp, um, that before people realized it, and people in the U.S. weren't generally weren't aware of this because WhatsApp is so international, um, they thought, well, here's a company that's like having a tremendous growth, and this will be a threat to us. So um, Zuckerberg, you know, instituted what I call the playbook, which was, you know, a, a, a series of, you know, prongs in his, you know, uh, courtship of a company, you know, meant to break their will uh, and have them uh, sell the company to Facebook. Well, and another example of that being um, the the Instagram acquisition, which I had forgotten too that that Twitter actually had sort of the inside track on that, and it's just that Zuckerberg was not going to let Instagram get away. Oh, he had a playbook, and Twitter didn't. That's the bottom line. And the playbook is get personally involved. You know, bring them to your house. You know, you know, can basically just bombard them and don't let them leave really until they're, you know, on on board. And he would promise them independence. He'd say, "Hey, you could we're, you could keep doing what you're doing, and we're just going to give you more and more resources uh, to help you do it faster." And then he'd throw a, enough money at them that their investors would murder them if they turned it down. It's not said explicitly, but kind of reading between the lines, there's a couple times in the book where the suggestion is is that like Zuckerberg sort of resents on some level Instagram's success. Like also reading between the lines, it seems like he kind of pushed out the Instagram founders and also the WhatsApp founders or whatever. Uh, do you get that sense too that he's sort of not in any well, like yeah. yeah, go ahead. I don't think you have to read too deeply between the lines to make those conclusions. Mm. Um, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't maybe say it in those words, but you know, what I do, and this is sort of my approach to how I do these things in general, is that I give you the, I tell them the story, and you're able to come to that conclusion um, uh, just in the same way I would. But I don't have to circle it in red crayon, uh, you know. And, and and I say explicitly in this case that people on the Instagram team believe that Zuckerberg was, um, you know, forcing them out, starving them of resources, and was jealous of the success of Instagram. And I point out a few times when, you know, he says almost defensively, like he's saying, yeah, they're, they're, you know, successes, you know, because we gave them the resources. And when he told me that, uh, something to that effect, too, I asked him directly because I've been hearing that um, this is you know, the feeling among the Instagram team that he was jealous of Instagram's success, which is kind of weird because you know, he, can, he could take credit for it in, in a sense. He did give them the resources. He was smart enough to identify that this was a great company to buy. His billion-dollar um, you know, amount that he gave to buy the company was an unbelievable deal. Um, and, but uh, when I asked him about it, I said, well, are you jealous of Instagram, you know, our, our relationship got to the point where I, I'd be asking him these direct questions, like left and right, um, and you know, he like paused for a long time and gave um, a, an answer which, you know, sort was somewhat evasive, but um, uh, didn't really clear up the question about whether he, he was jealous or not. It's clear that um, he was uncomfortable with trying to answer that question. Um, one other impression that I came away from, um, you know, as you said, the, the book is a lot of tracing the decisions that got Facebook to where it is and also decisions that maybe got it into trouble. Um, Sheryl Sandberg's hire, um, the way Sandberg and, and Zuckerberg divvied up uh, duties, and essentially it was sh- 
Cheryl would take over all of the parts of running Facebook as a business that Zuck didn't care about. Um, and how, you know, you got to figure that inside the company, you can understand, well, uh, I want to be working on the stuff that Zuck cares about. And this other stuff maybe isn't that important. And that might have led to a lot of their problems. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think the people who are working in Cheryl world, as I call it, felt they weren't doing important work. But effectively, um, you know, the, a lot of the, the problems that were bubbling up in that world, you know, uh, just didn't get to, to Zuckerberg and the lieutenants around him to really set the priorities for the company. So that particularly came out, you know, uh, when you trace back why all these you know, things happened during the election, how Facebook was allowed, you know, made the decision to let fake news keep proliferating. Um, uh, I think that really could have benefited, you know, from more attention, you know, from Zuckerberg and, and his team. It did come before them at some point, but it was really, um, you know, uh, the, in the domain of, of Cheryl World. Um, and uh, with, uh, in terms of the Russian involvement, uh, the security, the chief security officer, Alex Stamos, reported up the chain to Cheryl. I mean, he has a C in his name, and he had, and he reported to the chief counsel, reported to the chief policy you know, to the head policy person who reported to Cheryl and then, you know, forget getting up to Mark, you know, that, you know, uh, Stamos never had a one-on-one with Mark Zuckerberg. Right. That's and, amazing. You know, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't so, know that. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. Do you, do you think that Sandberg, I, I get the sense that she would have left Facebook by now had all of the scandals and stuff not happened. Do you think that she doesn't have much time left well, at Facebook? Well, I mean, that was, my conclusion was, you know, I ran this theory by her that, you know, uh, and she told me that I thought I'd give Facebook five years. And I said, well, you know, my guess is, Cheryl, that, uh, you know, you wanted to leave after the IPO, but the IPO was a disaster. Um, and it took a, a few years for Facebook to recover from then. You want to leave on a high. And then um, after that, uh, you know, tragically, her husband died. He was a fantastic guy. Um, and that definitely threw her off her game, quite understandably, uh, for months, really. And then, you know, uh, uh, and I told her, I was saying, you know, maybe you would have run for senator at, at, at that point, you know. Uh, but other people told me Kamala Harris had in the bag. But um, uh, and then, you know, uh, Facebook's run these other problems. Not so easy to leave in the middle of this crisis. And she told me, well, you know, first of all, you know, and she I think she, she quite justifiably said, you know, the, my husband is a totally different kind of category of issue there. But, um, uh, that, you know, uh, I don't want to run for office, she told me, and which is sort of counter what everyone thinks about Cheryl. But she did say that if Clinton had won, she would have welcomed an opportunity to serve in that administration. Um, uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, I, I personally, you know, I don't say this in the book, I, the book is not for me to make judgments, and it's for me to tell the story. And maybe people reading the book can come to that conclusion is I wouldn't be surprised if Cheryl, you know, found another opportunity for herself um, uh, in the next year or so. Um, I think that, uh, you know, she's done a lot for Facebook, you know, and I do take her to task for a couple of things, um, uh, you know, rising from the way the company was split and how, you know, she didn't elevate these things to, to Zuckerberg and, you know, and certainly, you know, didn't handle them well on their own. Um, and, 
it was, uh, you know, uh, I think this, the Facebook is going to be in, in trouble for the foreseeable future. So, you know, she's got a new domestic situation. You know, she, she, she's engaged. And um, I wouldn't be surprised. And this is just, you know, me talking, you know, as, as a guest. I wouldn't want to make it a book. But, um, you know, um, uh, she's an incredibly talented person. She might feel that, that she could do better um, by doing something else. And as far as Zuckerberg, I, I heard you say, I think that um, the two words you've never heard at Facebook our succession plan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you know he is going anywhere. Um, if the board of directors, uh, for some reason, wanted to say, you know, we're, we we're, we had enough Zuck, um, uh, he could always say, well, I have the voting stock. You know, try to get me out of here. Um, and but the people he puts on the board, you know, and he has a lot of say on it. Um, you know, are generally supporters. Peter Thiel. Uh, is, I don't think it's going to say, you know, no more Zuck. Uh, they just appointed Drew Houston to the board. Um, you know, Drew Houston didn't come on the board to throw out Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so uh, I, I don't think that's a worry. And the final question I'm going to straight up steal from Casey Newton, um, because he noted that, you know, you've done book length dives into Apple and Google as well. Um, how how does Facebook's internal culture compare to other tech companies cuz the i've always noted that over the years that you know every every company has a different culture but the people at facebook are definitely definitely different than than other companies yeah yeah and and it's very much in zuckerberg's image um you know uh, he is an ambitious person he's a person who wants to get things out there in a hurry um, you know, only recently have they, you know, made the uh, statement saying, well, from here on in, we're going to actually try to figure out what the consequences are of things we do, you know, um, uh, which uh, one would hope that people <laughs> do that from day one. But, uh, you know, but now they say we're, you know, they didn't exactly say we have no, had no realization of that before, but we're going to think more about that. Um, and uh, that's, that's, you know, and it's also, more of a, I, I wouldn't say like a literal cult of personality, but more of something where people um, wind up channeling their leader. And even though the you know a company of Facebook size is over thirty thousand people, um, uh, you know most people will have never met Mark Zuckerberg, and you know uh, you'd be surprised if the chief security officer didn't sit down with him one by one. But you know you can imagine the rank and file. Facebook worker, you know, doesn't spend time with Mark Zuckerberg. But many times I would hear people refer to something that this is what Mark thinks, um, you know, and, you know, Mark wants us to do X and Y. So it, it, in that sense, it is something where he is, you know, the person whose voice winds up in their head. Um, and that's a little different, you know, even though you say like Larry Page, you know, um, uh, was a strong, you know, influence on the Google culture. You didn't hear that then, and um, and you know, even though Steve Jobs, obviously fantastic, you know, unparalleled talent in Silicon Valley, it's like people weren't encouraged to think like Steve Jobs necessarily. It's only Steve Jobs could think like Steve Jobs. Um, so it, it is something like that. You go to the wall, the walls of headquarters are plastered with these posters that are basically things that, um, you know, or that either Zuckerberg said, or, you know, things that you'd think he'd say, you know, move fast and break things. And what would you do if you're not afraid? You know, uh, and, you know, uh, 
so that message just gets pounded on you. Uh, well, as I mentioned in the intro, the book is Facebook, The Inside Story by Stephen Levy. Stephen, by the way, uh, you know, I read all of these books. This is the best tech book that I've read in several years. It was so fantastic and well-written. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I encourage you to post a review on Amazon. <laughs> Will do. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.